0: Let's together pray. Lord God, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, and I'm so grateful that he did what we couldn't. I pray, Lord, for you to help me as I preach for each one of us, that we would experience a freedom, a freedom in your presence, and I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, today I'm excited to be starting a new sermon focus just for Lent. Lent is six weeks long, and um, just as a technicality, it's 40 days long, but in order for that to work, it starts on Ash Wednesday and ends on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. If you don't count Sundays, Sundays are not supposed to be counted in Lent. This is a feast day in a season of fasting. We celebrate communion. It's a Sabbath. It's a rest. You are not a slave in Egypt anymore. You are not a slave to sin anymore. And it's a reminder to us that we've been set free. So don't, um, don't misunderstand Lent. So in this series, we're going to, uh, which I'm titling Extending Grace, if there's, there's a cover uh, picture up on the screen there, um, you know the new title to, or the new, not title, but the new vision statement for our church is Extending Grace to Generations. So those words are what we're using to explain why we exist as a church, what we're about, what we're doing. And I'm picking up the first part of that for the season of Lent, Extending Grace. And my sincere longing for us as a people is that we would have a contagious knowledge and understanding of what grace is. Some have called it God's riches at Christ's expense, that G-R-A-C-E acronym. At the end of the day, it is God who saves, and it's not about worthiness on our part. And so I want us to so internalize that message that when we run into someone out in our normal everyday life in work or family or recreation or whatever, who doesn't understand that, it would bubble up within us, and we would say, let me tell you some good news, that we would have good news for people. And it's always about God initiating. So let me give you a a little test you can use to evaluate a teaching, a Bible study, or a sermon you might hear, or something you might listen to on a podcast or on the TV or whatever. The question is, does the good news start with God or you? Many sermons start out with a you statement. For instance, you can be forgiven. While true, that's not necessarily good news. A better statement of good news would start with God and say, God forgives sins, therefore you can be forgiven. God is the initiator. Good news always starts with him. You can overcome temptation. That puts a lot on you. It's about you. That's not necessarily good news. You can overcome temptation, but rather a statement like this, Jesus defeated temptation for us so that you can overcome temptation temptation. A lot of sermons start with the application and never give the the muscle that gives you the power to to apply it. It's all about you. You got to do it. You. And I, I really dislike the oughts. You ought to serve. While true, that's not good news. Good news is this. Jesus served you on the cross. And in response to that, you ought to serve. So grace is about God's initiative. And in this series, we're going to look at how he does for us things that we can't do. We're going to see him initiate with Abraham. We're going to see him initiate with Moses. And today we're going to see Jesus himself going into the wilderness to conquer temptation. So my main point today is this. He did what we couldn't so that we could. He defeated temptation. He did what we couldn't so that we could. So if you want to turn in the Pew Bible, go to Luke chapter 4. It's page 859. I think it's helpful to have the word of God in our hands, to see it in black and white printed there. This account of Jesus's temptation is in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there are different versions, different variations. In Mark's gospel, it's very truncated. It's small. But what I like about Mark's gospel is it says that Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, like a a cow, cattle, like you would drive cattle. He's pushed out there This wasn't a uh, vacation to go out into uh, the woods and go camping. Jesus was driven out there to be tempted and tested to prove that he is the one to do what we couldn't do. So it was part of God's plan for him. And so he's he's driven out there. In Matthew chapter 4, it's Matthew 4 and Luke 4, it's easy to find them because they're both on chapter 4, Matthew changes the order of the temptations. And a lot of scholars have debated that. A lot of ink has been spilt over that, and there's no clear answer to it. But I think something that that is fair to say is that there weren't just three temptations. The way that the grammar is written is it was an ongoing sequence of temptations over the 40 days. So Jesus had a really hard 40 days with lots of temptations. These three are just a summary um, that are typifying some things for us. So, N.T. Wright, the, the Anglican scholar, says that most Christians look at Jesus like we look at Superman. Like he's human, sort of. But you could, if he rips off his shirt, he's going to have this big S on his chest and a cape, and he can, you know, he's not really human. He can, he can do superhuman stuff. And yet, what the scriptures and church history has made clear is he was fully human, which means when he was tempted, he suffered. It wasn't easy for him because he's the son of God. It was hard, like it is for us. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So he really did suffer, and we need to understand that a little bit. The lies of Satan were actually attractive to him. So consider the context here. Jesus has been baptized in the prior, preceding chapter, and then in the baptism, God says, "'You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased.'" So his father speaks identity over him. And then three times in the account here, that's challenged. If, if you are the son of God. Now, like any normal person, he would, he would want to right the wrong and say, I am the son of God. I am the son of God and start defending his own identity. That's our temptation. He didn't succumb to that temptation. He didn't even enter that discussion. He, he simply trusted his father's word that he's the son of God. And then he went to the Scriptures to deal with each of these temptations. So these temptations, you know, could be categorical ones. The first could be a temptation of the flesh, a a natural physical desire. It says in here, after 40 days of fasting, he was hungry. He actually was hungry. Not Superman. Empty stomach, hunger. The thought of a loaf of bread would cause him to salivate. He could imagine taking a bite of it, chewing on it, how good that would taste, swallowing it. He was fully human. And so the idea of using his power to meet a need was a temptation. Satan says, turn these these stones into bread if you are the son of God. Not only would he be proving that he has the power that the son of God would have, but he'd be meeting a need. The problem is he'd be meeting his own need and not doing what his father sent him to do. And he'd be disobeying. The Holy Spirit drove him out there to fast for 40 days. That was the plan. So the temptation there was to do something else. Or think about the call on his life to be a ruler. Isaiah talks about the government being on his shoulders, that this servant would be raised up who would rule all the nations. Zechariah, when he picks up the baby Jesus in the temple and prophesies over him, speaks of what kind of a leader he would be. He was called to rule. And the temptation is this, I, Satan, have all authority. I can give it to you. Just worship me and I'll give it to you. Skip that painful cross. You don't have to go that way. Here's the easy way. You know that commercial about the easy button? Satan's going, here's the easy button. Just worship me, ding, it's all yours. But it wouldn't really be all his, right? I mean, he would have had to worship Satan. And so that's, there's an authority problem there. But the temptation is to take the easy route to get where you're supposed to get. that wasn't the father's plan for Jesus. Or think about his love for people. Okay, so he loves people. The Lord loves you. And having a crowd of people that he could serve and minister to was important. And the temptation of throwing yourself off the temple is get a crowd by a spectacular event. Jump off the temple. His angels will escort you down and put you on your feet right there in front of everybody. And they'll go, ooh, here he is, the son of God. Get the crowd the spectacular way instead of the way that Jesus actually did, which is go in obscurity to small towns up by the fishing village around Galilee. Don't let them talk about your glory. Heal, cast out demons, proclaim the gospel, do it sporadically, and gradually let the Father bring the crowds when the timing is right. Follow God's timing instead of your own. Again, the temptation here is for real. And Satan is for real. I feel like in this culture, I need to say that there is personified evil in this world. It's not just your own sinful desires that tempt you, and it's not just the broken value system of the world that's under the prince of this world. It's also personified evil. There's a real adversary. It's called Satan, the devil. He's got like 40 names. Rolling stones sing about him. There's a ton of different names for him. But he's also got demons, uh, which are fallen angels. And, you know, I, I don't know that Satan personally is necessarily the one that's tempting us. I mean, there's 7 billion people on the planet. He's pretty strategic, you know, he's, he's shrewd. And so he's probably messing where he can get the biggest bang for the buck. But he's got a third of heaven that has fallen, that are demons, that tempt. They do actually tempt us. Now, I don't know that Jesus was physically moved up to the pinnacle of the temple so much as he had the picture in his mind. Satan, I don't believe, can read your thoughts Demons can't read your thoughts, but they can give you thoughts. They can put ideas in your head. They can do things. The scriptures are clear about that. And what we think in the West is that's just a bunch of folklore. That's not true. That's like the little devil with his horns and his tail and the angels on this shoulder. And it's been so, you know, made into a cartoon so much that we think it's not true, but it's totally true. And every once in a while, a devil, the demons, whatever, they tip their hand. You know that's an expression from cards when you're playing cards with somebody and they tip their hand by mistake and you get to see what they have. So you're playing Uno and they're about to go out and they tip their hand and you see it's a red card so you change it to blue. Right? That's the expression. Every once in a while the enemy tips his hand and you see him overplaying his temptation. I'll give you an example from this very week. Like any good marriage, Heather and I sometimes have disagreements. So we had a conversation this week. And um, before work, early in the morning, and um, I did what I always do as a thinker, and analytical person. I explained myself and why I did what I did and said what I said. And then she went out to the car to go, go to work in a not good place and texted me something. And she said, you're not hearing what I'm saying. You're justifying yourself. And she's totally right, which is why I, I was explaining why I did what I did, why I said what I said, but it could have been read as a justification. She was right. I wasn't listening to her complaint. I was trying to explain myself, right? So she texts that to me, and I realize it's right. I go, oh, just you know, frustrated. Immediately, another text comes in, 7.15 in the morning, and it says this, meet any young single girl anywhere. Click here. <laughs> and I was like, you devil of hell, get out of my phone. I've never, I've never gotten a text like that. I've never, that's just right. I mean, it was like uncanny. He, He went too far. He tipped his hand. And I was like, that's not coincidence. That's Satan prowling around like a devil, like a lion. He's constantly looking for ways to trip people up. Now that's repulsive to me, but that one was obvious. Sometimes they're not obvious. Those temptations are coming. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil are the three things that bring temptation for us, all three of which we renounce in the baptism vows, by the way. But you've got to recognize that evil is personified. He's out there. He comes to steal and kill and destroy, is what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Lest I get caught up on a sermon about the enemy, which is bad, we're not going to talk about him anymore, I want to focus on Jesus. And I want to look at two context clues about what Jesus, in fact, is doing, how he's fulfilling for us a need. So the first context clue, if you look at your Bible, is not chapter 4, it's chapter 3. Just look back a little bit, what comes right before that. Beginning in chapter three twenty-three, all the way to 38, is a list of genealogy. It starts with, presumably, it says in parentheses, that, that Joseph was Jesus' father, although not biologically, he was Mary's husband, so he was raising Jesus, but they always chased the genealogy back through the father. So it started with him, goes all the way back, and it, and it gets to the end, and it, goes, it says this, um, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then it says Jesus goes into the wilderness by the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Luke, who wrote this, is trying for, to help us see That there was another man who was in the wilderness one time and met Satan for temptation and he failed. He took the fruit. He failed. He was deceived. And here comes another Adam, a new Adam, the perfect Adam, the one who would actually succeed. Jesus would do for us what Adam didn't. Jesus would do for us what we can't, so that in him we actually can. That's one context clue. The other one is that he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and he's quoting Deuteronomy. Each time that the devil tempts him, he goes to Deuteronomy, either chapter 6 or chapter 8, to quote Scripture. Do you know who else was in the wilderness with the number 40 and the book Deuteronomy? The Israelites. They were 40 years after they came through the Red Sea that they were in the wilderness, and Deuteronomy was Moses' teaching showing them how they were going to follow the law once they settled in the land of Canaan and they failed miserably. In fact, Psalm 95 talks about how God, in his words, says, I loathed that generation. They were constantly going astray at Meribah is one particular place. And think about what they did. They grumbled about the food. Moses, you've just let us out here to die in the wilderness. We're hungry. So what does God do? Provides manna from heaven to feed them he wasn't going to let them die. He was rescuing them out of Egypt. Then they complained. All we have is this this, miraculous bread that falls every day. That's not enough. They grumbled. We want meat. So in the desert, quail fly in. They get quail to go with their bread. And they complain again. We missed the garlic and the onions to cook the quail that we had when we were in Egypt, mind you, as slaves. They grumbled. They complained. Not only that, Okay, so Jesus is being tempted, turn this stone into bread. And here's the Israelites complaining about the food as well. Then they were tempted with idolatry, just like Jesus. If you worship me, Satan says, then you can have all this. Well, what did they do when Moses was on the mountain? They got Aaron and they made a golden calf and they worshiped that golden calf. They practice idolatry in the wilderness, and finally Moses smashes the idol, spreads it on the water, makes them drink it to show that their idol is not really a God at all. There you go, you just ate your God. What kind of God is that? Repent and worship the real God. So the Israelites failed in that regard as well. And I mean, think about the different ways that they tested God. That's what he says in Psalm 95. In the day that you tested me, they were constantly testing. And Jesus said, no, no, don't put the Lord your God to the test. The same way that Israel failed, the same way that Adam failed, and you could take the whole line of everybody, Jesus succeeded. He did what we couldn't so that in him we could. He conquered this for us. That is good news. It starts with God. He initiated and did it. You don't have to clean up your act for him. He did it for you so that you can receive his gift and then in his strength begin to live like he lived. He's doing this for us. He's the perfect man. Therefore, he was able to be the perfect lamb on the cross to take away all the sins of the world. He defeated the world and its value system that says serve yourself. He defeated the flesh and its broken desires and he defeated the devil. It tells us here that after all his 40 days of temptation, he left him until an opportune time, which was the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' point of real suffering, sweating blood. He was so anxious because he knew what was about to happen and Satan's there pointing at him and just doing whatever he does to make it really hard. And Jesus defeated him. And Satan probably thought up to the end he was winning. Like, look at this. I've got the Son of God dying on a cross. And then suddenly realized something. I've lost the entire thing. Lost it all. So Jesus did all this for us. Now, you know what I think is awesome in Luke's gospel? Jesus at one point is accused of using the strength of Satan to cast out demons. And he, this is in chapter 11 of Luke, 1121. Luke he uses this illustration of a strong man. He says, if a really strong man with armor is guarding his house, all of his goods are protected until a stronger man comes and takes away his armor and then plunders his stuff. And that was him saying, I've come to plunder Satan. He's strong. I'm so much stronger. He takes away his armor and he starts plundering everything that Satan has accumulated. And I think about how Satan can't bear scorn. You know, I got that text and I'm thinking, you better go guard your house because it's being plundered right now. Jesus is taking people back. He's taking things back. He's taking institutions back and they're serving him. You've lost. You've lost. You're the weak man. The strong man has come. This is great courage for us. It, it should encourage us in this. You know how he takes away the armor? He does it by the cross. So whereas before, Satan, which means the accuser, would point his finger and say, you're a sinner, you're no good, you don't deserve anything. And he was totally right. We can say, you're right. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice on the cross, has forgiven me. He's filled me with his spirit. He's creating me into a new creation. I'm not that old person. I'm the new Mike. I'm the new person in Christ. So you have no grounds to stand on. The strong man is now weak, and Jesus has conquered And so we have things like the Hebrews passage, chapter four, that says he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. So he's able to help us in our time of need. So Hebrews 4, 16 says, draw near to him, draw near to him in your time of need and find grace to help. He has grace for you. He knows the struggle because he's been there and he defeated it. So he will help you. Let me conclude with this. This is a verse worth memorizing. Um, I did it in NIV, so forgive me, I'm kind of like half-memorized NIV and half-converted it to the ESV, but you'll get the point. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a passage you should memorize because it will be useful to you when, not if, but when the temptations come. And there, Paul tells the Corinthians and us through them that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God, who is faithful, will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can withstand it. We've got to learn what temptation is, what it looks like in our life. Are you aware of the ways that you're tempted? Everybody's got their weaknesses. Some people are stronger in one category and weaker in another. What are yours? Do you recognize when temptation comes? Do you ask God to make you quickened to that? So the sooner you realize you're being tempted, the sooner you can start looking for the way out. A lot of times we're pretty far into it before we even realize what's going on. Satan might have tipped his hand this week in one category, but he was really wily in another, I'm sure. So we have to pray for this this help. God, show me where I'm being tempted and show me where the way out is. And here's the other encouragement. You'll fail at times, we all do. It happens. But on one hand, it doesn't matter. Don't mishear me. It's not about salvation. If you are in Christ, you are already saved. That is taken care of. This is about learning to become like Christ. It's becoming more and more sanctified, more and more like him, holier. So you're fighting a battle in a war that's already been won. Fight the good fight, but recognize that Jesus has already won the battle, already won the war. You're just in a skirmish at the end. So take courage in that. And let's together seek him for this help that he offers. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm so grateful for what you've done for us. We recognize our weakness in many categories and we pray for your grace. Pray that you would increase our desire for your way. I pray for our church that you would so deeply implant that message of grace in our hearts that we would in fact be contagious with it and that we would live into it ourselves. Lord, we will forever bring you praise because of your goodness. We love you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's now.